So as we come to Deuteronomy, it's Moses in the last month or so of his life. He's there on the east side of the Jordan River. They're looking at the promised land in Jericho. He's preparing the next generation to enter into the promises and all that God has for them to go in and take, take the land that God's promised them to get out for the inheritance. And as he's doing so, he's now reviewing the law of God that the previous generation had received almost 40 years ago at Mount Sinai. So he's expanding on the law. Deuteronomy means second law. What really is the expanding of the first law and understanding it and breaking it down. So he's talking to a future generation that has watched a previous generation die and step into eternity. And now it's their chance to do their thing and and live their life. And for me personally, having traveled so much in the last three months and really with my own kids being anywhere from 23 to 30, I just can't help but look at the next generation everywhere I go and think it's your planet It's your country. It's your world. You're going to inherit it. So think and pray about what you're doing and the decisions you're making. But I I think those things with a, a perspective of optimism and faith that the Lord, as he guides each generation and each generation makes their decisions, they can make good decisions and be blessed. And that's what we want for them. So as we come to chapter five tonight, We now get Moses teaching the Ten Commandments. So for the second time in our journey through the five books of Moses, we get the Ten Commandments straight up. And so, I mean, they don't come up too often in the Bible. So we want to take our time and take a look tonight at the Ten Commandments. We're going to break them down in three increments. The vertical commandments with the Lord, the transitional commandment with parents, and the horizontal commandments with your neighbor. And so keep us on track with three different things, and we pick it up tonight in verse 6 of chapter 5, where Moses is talking, and now he's reminding them of what the Lord did for them and how they got the Ten Commandments, and he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who's within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord God has commanded you, that your days may be long that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his oxen, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Now, we know that Moses broke those tablets when he came down the mountain the first time because the people had been led into idolatry with the golden calf 
by the brother of Moses, Aaron, the high priest. So then Moses went back up the mountain, got a second set of the Ten Commandments, the two stone tablets, literally written with the hand of God. They eventually end up in the Ark of the Covenant. And for centuries, they were in the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the tabernacle, the central place of worship, and then the temple when Solomon built it uh, around 950 B.C. And the second set of stone tablets that God wrote were in that tabernacle in the temple. They're in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, then the, the temple. And when the temple was destroyed, we have no record where they ever ended up. There, it's, that's why it's like, you know, Indiana Jones and, you know, the Lost Ark. Because it's the, it'd be the greatest archaeological find ever if you could find the Ten Commandments. Because how often can you find two stone tablets that God wrote on them, his commandments, with his own hand, if you will. That's what he did. So very real, the Ten Commandments, the second set. And we know that the New Testament expands a lot on the Ten Commandments specifically. Because we talk about the law of God, we have the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. Then we have the civil law, which is guiding capital punishment, murder, manslaughter, these things. And then we have religious law, which deals with the priesthood, the animal sacrificial system, and the religious holidays. But this text, of course, is the moral law, the Ten Commandments, which are individually to be Heard, believed, received, and applied. Now, in the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Covenant, before the New Covenant in Christ, they were still to be applied by faith. No one ever kept these things and went to heaven because they're a good enough person and stood before God. No one, not Jeremiah, not Esther, nobody in 1,500 years of their covenant went into eternity and said, I'm going to heaven because I was a good Queen Esther, I was a great Daniel the prophet, and I kept the Ten Commandments, and I'm perfect, I'm going to heaven. No one ever got to heaven in the Old Testament that way. Because we know from Hebrews 11 that anyone that ever gets to heaven prior to the time of Christ got to heaven through faith. For without faith it's impossible to please God. And those who come to him must believe he is in the order of those who seek him. And we understand from the New Testament writings that as they had the Ten Commandments as a guide for moral conduct and character to give convictions, to have character, they never saved anybody. They were saved by faith, believing the promises of God. And those promises of God in the Old Testament were always pointing to Christ coming. That's why they had the hundreds of prophecies and the typologies. So every time they kept the Passover with the blood of the lamb, that's where their faith was looking at this substitutionary animal with the blood on the doorpost, just like Christ would do as a substitution for us with his blood on the cross. It's important to understand that with the Ten Commandments. And as we come to the Ten Commandments, we know that Jesus was asked, which are the greatest commandments? The greatest commandment. He said the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, vertical. And the second like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, horizontal. Now, when Paul was being led by the Holy Spirit right in the book of Romans, he wrote something that's very beneficial to all of us. And I quote from Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, which is to lie, you shall not covet, that's that back five we just read, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So as we break down the Ten Commandments tonight, we want to break it down with that New Testament perspective that ultimately love, God's love working in us, God's love received by us, transforming us through the Holy Spirit in us, working in and through us, that love will help us live out 
the commandments the way they were meant to be, not by self-righteousness by which we conjure up, but by faith and yielding to the Holy Spirit in our life. So we want to keep that in mind. And of course, Jesus himself said that he didn't come to cancel the law, the Ten Commandments, but he came to fulfill them. So as we've been saying, as we've been going through the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, time and time again, that Jesus Christ is the perfect man. And Jesus Christ is, as the Son of God, Son of Man, perfectly fulfilled these Ten Commandments. He wasn't crucified for... He didn't receive capital punishment because he broke these commandments. He received capital punishment because he claimed to be God, which is who he is. But he fulfilled these commandments perfectly. And as he fulfilled them, and as we look to him and have faith on him like the serpent in the wilderness, as we look to him and believe, his righteousness is then imputed or reckoned to our account. So the perfect life he lived obeying the law, the Ten Commandments, is then given to you and me. That's what happens. When we're born again and we receive Christ, the righteousness that he showed by fulfilling the Ten Commandments is then reckoned to or imputed to our account. It's a full deposit. It's like an electronic deposit. It happened. It went through. And you're fully righteous because Jesus kept the Ten Commandments without fail perfectly. Perfectly. So he died on the cross for our sins, but he also died on the cross for our justification. And God made him who knew no sin become sin for us that we could become the righteous of God. So when we're born again, for in Adam all sin and die, when we're born again in Christ, the second Adam, we're made alive. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's what happens. So again, as we look at the Ten Commandments tonight, we want to bear in mind that Jesus fulfilled them. And as we are born again through faith in Jesus, by faith, that we are empowered to live a life that reflects them and bring glory to him as we do so. That's what we're going to keep in mind. But they're not making us righteous. We're not going to keep these Ten Commandments and be justified before God because we did. But these things are going to be lived out in our life because we're being transformed from glory to glory through faith in Jesus. And this is what the Spirit's going to do in our life. And it's going to make us a better neighbor. It's going to make us a better citizen on planet Earth. And it's going to make us better ambassadors for Jesus Christ and the coming kingdom. So, first of all, let's look at the four commandments that deal vertically tonight with that background. Commandments 1 through 4. So the first one is you have no gods before the Lord. It's fairly simple. God is supreme. It's not like he's God number one, there's other gods. It's not Jesus plus this or Jehovah plus that. It's, there are, there are no other gods. Like he says to Isaiah time and time again, I am the Lord, there is no other. There are no other gods. Only one God made the universe. He's Father, Son, and Spirit, triune in nature. He made the universe three-dimensional, triune in nature. And all, everything we see and know in time, space, and matter reflects God and only God. Only God made the universe, not many gods. There's not a God of the sea, a God of war, a God of increase, a God of sex and reproduction and fertility. There's one God, God who has a plan for the universe, God who made man in his image to, for the purpose to show man that love and to give humanity, men and women, the opportunity to reciprocate or return that love. That is the God we serve. There's only one God. So we'll have no gods before the Lord our God. And he revealed himself to them in a direct covenant this way, which is incredible. They heard his voice there at Mount Sinai. Unlike any other nation, he didn't do that for anyone else. And through this nation, he promised to send his son, the Messiah, who came for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. There are no other gods. 
we can say that if someone wanted to, well, we've heard people say that all roads lead to God and to heaven. Nothing can be so ridiculous and, and untrue objectively. We can't all be right. We can all be wrong, but we cannot all be right. So on the first commandment, we realize it's not like Buddha's going to save you and Muhammad's saving you, like Muhammad's saving the Middle East, Buddha's saving the Far East, and Jesus is saving the Western world. It doesn't work like that. There's one God. God alone will have no other gods. So it's not Jesus plus Buddha, Jesus plus tolerance of world religions in the sense of tolerance that we accept them as being viable belief systems. They are false gods, and they are false religions. And if that offends people, it's going to offend them, and it will, because many people put their trust in Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, animist, pantheistic gods. But only Jesus Christ can save. This was the message of the early church when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin and said, There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You'll have no gods before me. We've got Jesus, we've got everything. He's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through faith in Jesus Christ, being born of the Spirit. We are complete in him, as it says in Colossians. Jesus is all who will ever need. If you've got Jesus, you've got the Savior, and you've got everything you need for the human experience because we're created to know Jesus and to serve Jesus and fulfill his calling on our life. If we don't have Jesus, we don't have what we need at all, and we're missing what our life is meant to be. It's a sad thing, and we make our choices. But the choice is Jesus is God or Jesus isn't God. So they have no other gods before me. It's, it's Jesus is Lord, and that's that. No one comes to the Father but through me, he said, and we're reminded that tonight when you have no gods before him. We'll not make a carved image most of us don't make carved images. Now, he, he didn't say it in the sense, it's not in the sense that we can't have imagery that reflects heaven, like the Sistine Chapel, right? Because we know that God even gave instructions on how to build cherubim. So we're, we, we build things that reflect heaven. It, you have that instruction. But of course, none of us knows what Jesus looks like. So it's, it's, it's hard to do a children's Bible without drawing Jesus of some sort. But I think, you know, God knows our heart, and we're trying to help kids understand that God became a man and walked among us. But we're not worshiping Jesus on a piece of paper and a a cartoon picture or a replica of what someone thinks that is. When you watch The Chosen, we're not looking at an actor portraying Jesus and thinking that that's really Jesus. We're not worshiping that actor saying, wow, you know, like that's not what we're doing. But of course, there are people that build images and shrines and whatnot, and they worship them. And I just would say that's not a good idea. That's a very bad idea. And we don't know what Jesus looks like. And no one has seen the Father in any time, but Jesus revealed the Father to humanity. So we see him through the eyes of faith. That's how we see Jesus in our prayer time. Now, maybe Jesus might appear to you in a vision or a dream, because that happens in the book of Acts. That happens in church history. That happens in the mission field. You hear of people, and recently, in the last 20 years, quite a bit in the Islamic world, you've heard of Muslims who said, Jesus came to my room and appeared to me and told me he's the Savior. So if a Muslim goes from being a Muslim and is ostracized from society and family and gives their life to Christ and is executed for it or persecuted for it or expelled from their nation for it and says that Jesus came to the room and revealed himself, I'm inclined to believe it. Because I don't think you're going to do that if Jesus didn't really come. 
But if you're like Paul and you're Saul and you're persecuting Christians and you hate their guts and you have a vision from Jesus on the road to Damascus and he reveals himself to you and the one who formerly persecuted now preaches the message, I'm not, that's a valid, that's, but remember when Jesus did that on the road to Damascus, the people just heard a noise, but they didn't hear the voice of the Lord. We'll have no images, so no idolatry, no idols. And of course, idols in their time, when they went to the promised land, they had the asterisks, the Baals, and all these other different idols. And so it was a direct warning contextually for them. And those were the idols of wealth, fertility, sexual immorality, uh, unrestrained sexual activity, sexual revolution. The devil would have loved to give in Israel a sexual revolution in the land, but he's expelling, and, and God was executing the people from the land for their freedom of sexual revolution with all sexes, all people, and even animal kingdom. So I have to be really careful where sexual revolutions lead us as we're in one right now that's ripping our country apart and our entire planet and the world we know it. We'll get to that on honoring your father and your mother, if I remember it. So no idols or the things that are associated with idols. And God says he's a jealous God. He's not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. Do you understand the difference? See, when I was a pro surfer and I was top 10 in the world and I was a California kid, and I kept hearing Tom Curran was really good and getting better. I was like, oh, that's a kid that did WSA. Who's Tom Curran? I'm Joey Baran, right? Well, all my friends would come back to Carlsbad like, dude, Tom Curran's really good, man. I'm like, whatever. I'm Joey Baran. When I saw Tom Curran at 15 at Ventura County Line in a pro-am, I was like, uh-oh. Al Merrick was his coach. That's bad news. I'm like, even Joey Brand, with all the pride that I had, was like, he's really good. And then, you know, by the time he was 16 as an amateur, he was beating all the pros that were beating me on tour. I mean, I was still going to be top 20 in the world. Here's a six-year-old kid. He wins the Caton Contest in 1981 as an amateur, turns down the money. And I was like, I lost early, and I went home, and I found out Tom Kern won the Caton. I was like, Tom Kern won the Caton? I felt sick. I felt sick. My little rival from Santa Barbara was beating Sean Thompson and all the top pro surfers. And I was jealous of Tom Curran. And then when he won that first pro event in Japan just a year or two later, and I was in a slump, and he beat Mark Richards and Tom Curran. I was like, I was so sick. I was Japanese sick. I was like, so sick. I was so jealous. I was like, how can he surf that good? How is his backside so good? It's like perfect. He's still considered the greatest surfer of all time for his style. And I was anything but style. I was so jealous of Tom Curran. I stayed, I roomed with him in South Africa for two weeks one time, a few years later when he was moving on a world title. I just look at him and I go, I, I hate you. <laughs> you wrecked my world. You know, like Buzz Lightyear and Woody. You know, it's like, everything was good before you shut up, Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger. And I was jealous of him and his success and the abilities he had. That's not the jealousy God has. God is jealous for us because all of his passion is directed toward us on the cross. That's how he is. his love for us is demonstrated with Jesus dying on the cross, and he's jealous for us. He's like jealous for parents, parents being jealous for their kids when they see someone turning the kids against the good counsel of the parents. And you're jealous for your children because you know the bad counsel they're following of friends and the group they might be running with, it's, it's not in their best interest. It's destructive for them. It's going to have a bad ending. And, they're, and they're, we're jealous for our children 
We're jealous that they get a, that the coaches treat them properly, that the teachers aren't against them and harass them. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that's more like we're, we're passionate for those we love. That's what the jealousy implies. In fact, we think of jealousy as envy, like Joy Brand, Tom Curran, but that's not really what this word means in the Hebrew. It is to be passionate for. So he's opposed to idolatry and false gods because he's passionate for us. He's given everything for us and he's, he's passionate for us because he knows those things will destroy us. And that's what he says time and time and again, not only what we've already covered in the five books of Moses, but as we get deeper into Deuteronomy, we'll see that. We're then told not to use his name in vain. Well, Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Just the, the reverence for God and the respect for God. Don't you just cringe when people use the Lord's name in vain? You really do. In all my lifetime, I've never heard anyone curse Muhammad or Buddha at Target. But I've heard him curse Jesus Christ. And I just cringe. You just cringe. Like it's one thing if someone just kind of has a potty mouth. But when they use the Lord's name in vain, just like, oh. And that's good. You should cringe. You should cringe. I don't want to be insensitive if someone's using the Lord's name in vain. Yeah. A sign of conversion and transformation is you don't use the Lord's name in vain. That's just, that's just something that the, the Spirit's not going to... He'll clean it up really quick. So not using the Lord's name in vain because we hallow the Lord. Observe the Sabbath. Now, for them, that was a sign of the covenant. We've talked about this, that they had the Sabbath. Now, we are to have a Sabbath rest. It's good to have a day off. But we know that Jesus fulfills the Sabbath, that he died on the cross, and he gives us rest from the works of the flesh. And so he is our rest, what it really represented. And we know that the Ten Commandments is the only one not reiterated to the church in the New Testament. In fact, we're told that one person esteems one day, another another, Sabbaths, new moons, but let each esteem as they feel led, because... These are a shadow of things to come, but Christ is the substance. You know, I quote that verse a lot. But the context of that verse is literally the Sabbath and the the new moons and these things. These are shadows of things to come, but Christ fulfills it. So we're not going to do Jesus plus a legalistic relationship church absolutely on Saturday. And we don't, we limit phone calls we make, what we drive in our car. Because see, a lot of the Orthodox Jews to this day in Israel, they'll, they'll limit, like they won't make phone calls because that's their understanding of the Sabbath. Or they, they won't drive, but they'll take the bus. You see, that's what religion does. You get really weird, like, well, we can't drive, it's the Sabbath, but we can take the bus. Okay. Like, you see, that's what religion does. We're not about religion, we're about relationship. So the Sabbath, and we know in the early church that they got together on the Lord's Day, the day he rose from the grave. And so the Sabbath is never, ever associated with the church from the time Jesus rose from the grave. There's never book of Acts, pastoral teachings, the epistles, book of Revelation. If the Sabbath was meant to be applied legalistically or legally by the church, we would certainly know it from the historical record of Acts, the pastoral instructions from First and Second Timothy and Titus, as well as all those letters. And we're just told the exact opposite. Don't worry about it, what you do. They, we see in Corinthians, on the first day of the week, they got together. That was Sunday. That's when they celebrate, because that's the day Jesus rose from the grave. All vertical. These are all vertical in our relationship with God. So these are all vertical related. And it's, it's not that we love God because we have to, like we're a robot. But if we understand his love for us, we've been talking about this, they will naturally 
return that love. We are created to know his love and we are created to reciprocate, to return his love. But that truly doesn't happen until the spirit reveals to us that Christ is the savior and we respond to that and we really understand how great is God's love for us. Now, the fifth commandment is the transitional commandment. So vertical humanity to God. Now transitional because it's vertical because it's your parents, but it's transitional because it's human beings. But this transitional commandment, honor your father and your mother as the Lord God has commanded you that your days may be long, that it may be well with you in the land where you go that the Lord has given you. So this commandment we're, we're told is to honor our father and mother in the, that it may be, your days may be long. So it implies a longer life. Hell, good health, a longer life, and it may be well with you. So, listen, catch this: quantity of life and quality of life. That you'll live a long life and it'll be well with you. Some people live a long life and it's not well with them. Some people it's well, but they don't live a long life. But God's promising both: a long life that's a quality life, quantity. And quality, and this is what's interesting to to me about this. And we've again, I know we've touched on this a little bit, but back when you go to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter six, when it's talking about chapter five, it's like husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives submit to your husbands as the church does unto the Lord. But then you get to chapter six and it says to honor your father and mother. Children obey your parents. To honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and you live long in the land, long in the land, long days, and it be well with you. This, this commandment is asserted in the New Testament with emphasis as being completely in play with its principle for honoring your father and your mother. Now, we all understand that honoring your father and your mother has a different look. But again, I'll point out something here. It says honor your father and mother. The devil is trying to destroy the family unit that God has designed from the dawn of creation. He's always attacked the family unit, but he is just throwing stuff at us now that we've never even imagined or conceived as even being possible to wrap our minds around on the back end of this human experience. All I can say to us on this topic is we just need to pray, we need to love people, and we need to have our convictions so we don't have compromise. Skip Isaac. If we have strong convictions, biblical convictions, then they'll keep us from compromising. And that's what I'm looking at for my life. That my convictions are strong and firm based upon the word of God, so I won't compromise them and capitulate them. And as long as I'm the pastor of this church and in this pulpit, I intend to maintain that integrity and defense and faithfulness for the family unit. It says, honor your father and your mother. That's the family unit. Now, husbands die. Wives die. Blended families come together. Divorce happens because of hardness of heart, as it says, Jesus said. But new families are birthed, and things go forward. But we're called to honor our father and mother. That's the design God has. So with that context, as we understand it in our society, and these things that are upon us that we can't even really... It's an alternative reality almost, except it is reality. We come now to what we would normally think about honoring your father and your mother. What does that look like for us? We have younger people here tonight. What what does it look like for you? What does that look like? We have older people like myself. I have one, one, there's one parent left of the four, my father. And sometimes it is kind of like, I need to call my dad. I'm calling for a few days. I need, you know, 
oh, dad loves golf, and we'll pick him up. He'll watch the Masters tomorrow. We got to go to Whole Foods, get some stuff, bring dad down, and you know, like, this is what we're going to do. It's different things. But we have people in this church whose parents don't even know that it's their children taking care of them. But once your parents are gone, you can't honor your father and mother. Not in the way that you'd want to. See, for me, and I, again, speak to all of us, that's why I go out of my way to help my sister so much. Because when everyone gave up on my 55-year-old sister, my mom never gave up on my sister. I gave up on her. My brother gave up on her. I mean, I saw her screaming at streetlights at 7 in the morning out of her mind. I was like, she's gone. But God has restored her to a sane mind. But there's so much I'd like to redo with my mom to be a better son, but she's gone, and I can't do it. And those of you who have lost parents, you can relate to it. You'd like to redo some things. You'd like to maybe make this straight or make that better. You realize how much you took them for granted, and now they're gone, and they're not coming back. And that's that. So for me, when it comes to my mom, I just think, well, what I can do to honor my mom is to help my sister. That would be honoring my mom. That's, that's how I can honor my mom, is to, to be there for my sister like my mom was always there for my sister. Because my mom was always there for my sister. And I've just kind of developed a policy that I'm going to always answer the phone when my sister calls. Because I, that's how I'm honoring my mom. Now, I don't know how you honor your father and your mother, because it looks one way when you're 10, another way when you're 20, another way when you're 50. But the Holy Spirit will guide us in honoring our father and mother, and we need to honor our father and our mothers. Because when they're gone, they're gone. When you bury them in the Catholic cemetery in Cleveland on a cold, windy day with snow flurries, you've buried them, and they're not coming back, and you don't get a second chance. So to me, honoring your father and mother is so critical, and with our younger children, it teaches and respect vertical authority. That's why it's so critical. If you allow your children to be disrespectful to you and not honor you, you are setting them up to be disrespectful to the authorities that God has over them at work, with government, and society. So it's super important as parents what we hold our children accountable to respect the parental authority. Now, we're told not to provoke our children to wrath. That, of course, is there in Ephesians 6 as well. But we, with respect above it, beneath, we, we equip, we encourage, we build up, and we guide and we help our adult children. That's what we're doing. We're, we... We help them know how they should treat us. Not so they'll take good care of us when we're 80, but that would be good. But just it's the right thing. It's to their benefit to treat us properly when we're 60, when they're 30. Because it's to their benefit that it may be they live long and it could be well with them in the land. So in teaching our adult children to take proper care of us and helping them to do that, we're equipping them to be blessed. And we hold our kids accountable and we help them. And they make choices, and a lot of times they make bad choices. So as much as we can pray for them and help them, we, we do what we can. And the other thing about this is that for people who have never had children, because we have lots of people we know that have never had children, well, you can pray for and help children understand those important things. You don't have to be a parent to help kids to be good and respectful and honoring of their parents. That's something we can all do because we're a church family, and we can help and we can equip. 
of all these Ten Commandments, it's the one that pronounces the blessing of quantity and quality. It stands out. And that's why we cover it separately. Then we come to the back five. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear witness, which, of course, is the lie. And you shall not covet, the opposite being contentment. So murder is murder. We know that sometimes people kill by accident, manslaughter. We have the cities of refuge for that. We know that sometimes there's, there's capital punishment in the Old Testament. Maybe the New Testament can't be emphatic about that. But there's capital punishment that God gave. So it's not killing here, it's murder. There's a difference. You see the distinction. It's important to understand that. So if there's capital punishment, there's a killing that by a judicial process, a person's been found guilty of a crime worthy of capital punishment, and they're put to death. That, that's what they had in the law. There, would also, there could also be killing in self-defense. So that would be a moral justification. So if someone tried to kill you, and you killed them in self-defense. Also, the Bible makes a distinction of killing in a time of war. That there's a difference between killing in a time of peace and a time of war. And the Lord knows those distinctions. If any of my sons had been in the military, or daughters for that matter, and they went to war, they have a job to do. You know, I I asked my dad, I've I've only said this maybe once, but I've asked my dad about the Korean War and the Vietnam War because he fought communists uh, and he, he, he fought these idea. He fought ideologies. The Korean War and the Vietnam War were not wars over commerce, like World War I, World War II, and colonialism and that stuff. They were wars over ideologies, worldviews. Complete godless worldview, the Cold War, godless worldview versus a, a Christ-centered worldview. And so I asked my dad, like, you know, when you, when you were in Korea and Vietnam, like, and he was in combat, major combat. Said, Did you feel like you were fighting for freedom and all these things? He goes, nope. Well, what did you think? He's like, I was doing my duty. Semper Fi. Hoorah. I was trained as a soldier. And I was doing my duty for my unit and those that fought alongside of us. So in an all-night major battle in the Korean War, Ford Observer car and artillery rounds from Howard's two miles back, it wasn't so much that he was defending freedom or the American way of life, freedom of speech, freedom of choice, freedom from want, Norman Rockwell paintings. He was doing his duty, which he signed up for when he switched from ROTC Navy to ROTC Marines, became a Marine, went to Fort Still Army Base to learn artillery, and then was shipped off as a young man as a captain in the Korean War. It was his duty. It was the same thing in the Vietnam War. When people were shooting at him, he was doing his duty. So when you think of killing... It's not something I want to do, but I'm glad people are trained to fight war because there's a lot of people that want to take what our country stands for, take it from us, and destroy us. And there's a lot of people that would have invaded us, you know, just two generations ago if they could have. And we've been attacked on American soil more than once. So I'm, I'm glad there's people that are professional soldiers and trained for that. And again, I bring it up in the context of the Ten Commandments. This is you shall not murder. Jesus said... If you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. If you hate them, you're already there. We have to forgive, we have to let go, and we can't hold the bitterness. The initial rage or frustration, we have to take that captive to the Lord. Because murder is premeditated. And as we were discussing with the men today... 
If you've had previous DUIs and you're driving drunk and you kill people in a car, you can be charged with murder. They hold you accountable for it. Like the girl that hit the four kids and killed them here two years ago at Magnolia and PCH in May. She faced like secondary murder charges. There's a Calvary Chapel student, the girl that graduated 10 years ago, whatever. She had multiple DUIs. She was drunk and she hit a pedestrian and killed her. And she was charged with, I believe, secondary murder. In California, you can be charged with murder if you have had previous DUIs and you kill someone driving while under the influence. They hold you accountable for that. If a drunk driver who had previously had DUIs killed someone you love, wouldn't you feel that, that was murder? I think you would. Murder is, a, is doing things where you endanger others and you are doing things that will put people at risk that they would be killed or totally premeditated first degree. And we know that pretty much 85% of all murders take place someone killing someone they know. That's an established fact. Like Cain and Abel. So we just have to forgive people. You should not commit adultery. Jesus said adultery begins in, in the heart, in the eyes. He said you'd better off cutting off your hand. We just plucking out your eye. God values the sanctity of a marriage and two people being together. And the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they all work against the marriage. The devil hates marriage. So fidelity is super important and taking every thought captive. I think of the psalm that says, I'll set no evil thing before my eyes. And that's what we need to do. We need to fight for our marriages. When Paul said, fight the good fight, I fought the good fight. It's everything that's good and right. And we need to fight for our marriages. We need to fight for our purity. We need to fight for things that are important from before we're married, while we're married, until we step into eternity. We're lustful people. That's what we are. And so we need to fight to take thoughts captive and do the right thing. In a society without restraint, where marriage is being redefined as being anything and everything, we have to preserve and walk in integrity and purity and conviction and character for our marriages and our spouses. You shall not steal. I mean, it's obvious. You just you don't take what's not yours. There's all kinds of thefts. We talk about givers and takers, right? So takers take because it's never enough, even when they've almost taken all your stuff. Givers give and keep on giving because they're always willing to keep on forgiving. You want to be the giver. We sow bountifully. That's who we are. You know what? We sow bountifully. We're givers. That's our identity in the body of Christ. These are all the ministries and things we're investing in as a church. You just... You so bountifully stay at a hotel, leave a tip for the, the maid. Yeah, can you imagine being a maid in Ozona, Texas? Town of 2,000 people, 200 miles from San Antonio. I don't need to see the maid. I just know she lives in this town and she's cleaning this room when we leave. I'm going to leave her a tip, a good tip. That's, someone serves you really well at a Starbucks, you know, outside of Houston. One person working hard, and just all those cars are just flying. Heck, bless them. We're not trying to take stuff. We're trying to bless. Because more blessed to give than to take. And we know as we sow bountifully, we're going to be blessed. That's the disposition we want to have. We're not stealers. We're givers. In fact, the Bible tells the New Testament, let him who steals, steal, mo- steal no more and let him work hard. <laughs> Go figure. Then you should not bear false witness. So we're not liars. The devil's the father of lies. So we need to be people of truth. Again, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't swear by this or swear by the temple or the holy city of Jerusalem. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. The integrity of our word is the most important thing we have. When we speak the truth, it is the truth, that's that. 
Our yes is yes. Our no is no. That's who we need to be. Anything more from that is not good. That's what Jesus said. Reaffirm the book of James as well. But also bearing false witnesses like malice and gossip and deceit and all these things. That's what's been so hard in the last year. All the malice and gossip and slander and all these attacks as people raging unfiltered. And so much of it is lies. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. Let truth come from us. I'm so tired of cancel culture, twisting things and attacking people. Just speak the truth. Let the truth stand. As my son Luke would always say about the truth is, you never need to make it up. (laughs) And you're less likely to forget it. And it will be standing when you're gone. So the truth is always a good place to be. Lies upon lies, you start saying the strangest things like, isn't it, oh, just, you just go into the, this land of nonsense. Speak the truth, you shall not covet. The Bible tells us godliness with contentment is great gain. And we, we just, we're content with all the good things. Coveting is discontentment. We want to be content with what God has for us. We want to feel good about what God has for us and be blessed by what God has for us. Hebrews warns us against covetousness. I think we're, I think as a church family, I, I'm just really proud of us because I, I certainly feel like we're good on these things as a whole, but I feel like we're really good on, I feel like as a whole, we're very content with the good things of the Lord. We're not, I feel like we're content. We're generous people and we feel good about what God's done for us and we trust him to provide for us and he, we trust him to work through us to bless others who have less. I feel really good about this. This 10th one. I feel good about all of them. I feel like we're a very worshipful church, a reverent church, and a godly church. So the Ten Commandments are important. I don't know when I'll teach them again. They're important. They're in God's word. And as I read to you from Romans to start with, you understand that if we love the Lord and love our neighbor, we will naturally fulfill these things because love thinks no evil and it bears all things, it hopes all things, and love never fails, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 13. So I just close with that thought that We could never keep these things to go to heaven. But because we're born again from heaven with the spirit of God that comes from heaven, we can live these things to the glory of heaven and the coming kingdom. Not for justification, but because we're already justified. So I don't throw the Ten Commandments aside and say, well, it's irrelevant. I think it's very relevant. I think it's very relevant. I think the Ten Commandments are always going to be relevant. But they're, they're our guide morally, And they'll keep us in a good way. They give us good convictions. They'll guard us and they'll keep our hearts. And as we look to the Lord and yield to the Spirit, we'll see more of this in our life and less of what the contrasts are. And we'll be blessed. The people above us will be blessed. The people beside us will be blessed. The Lord will be pleased. And the people underneath us will be blessed. So uh, we take them to heart and we look to the Lord to help us glorify Him by living personal lives that reflect these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. For he said through Jeremiah that the days were coming where he'd write his law, not on a stone tablet, but in our hearts, and that it was a new covenant, and we are that new covenant. So these aren't written on stone tablets anymore. That's why the tablets are gone and missing. They're written in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So God help us in living this kind of life to his glory, to our blessing, and to those around us. Amen.